Episode 29 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.4, Lamanite Western Campaign, Capture Zarahemla. Was Amaron a genius, a quitter, or was he simply a manager of violence? We will explore these questions and offer a few thoughts about them in this episode. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is a bit different than others that discuss the Amalekiahite War in that we have few details to really build a battle or campaign analysis from. However, we still have several details that express some important information and present some possible lessons that are worth investigating. Additionally, this is a critical part of the war for a couple of reasons. One, the fighting here threatens the land of Zarahemla. Two, this fighting brings Helaman II and his army of stripling warriors onto the scene. Overview of the Campaign our last episode ended with Amalekiah's assassination as a result of Teancum's hurled javelin. We are then told that Amalekiah had a brother named Amaron who ended the offensive actions in the Eastern Theater and he traveled back to the land of Nephi where he informed the queen who had lost at least her second husband. Remember that her presumably first husband was killed by Amalekiah's servants and then she remarried Amalekiah, and now he was dead. This was not a good period in her life. I want to digress a moment to remind the listener of the time frame that we are discussing here. The king of the Lamanites that Amalekiah killed began his reign no earlier than 82 BC, or the 10th year of the reign of the judges. That was the year that the Lamanites attacked the anti-Nephi-Lehi's for the first time. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's at that time were led by the son of the former king of the Lamanites. We are told of a pending rebellion against the king of the Lamanites in Alma 24 verses 1 through 4. Quote, and it came to pass that the Amalekites and the Amulonites and the Lamanites who were in the land of Amulon and also in the land of Helam and who were in the land of Jerusalem, and in fine in all the land round about, who had not been converted, and had not taken upon them the name of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, were stirred up by the Amalekites and by the Amulonites to anger against their brethren. And their hatred became exceedingly sore against them, even insomuch that they began to rebel against their king, insomuch that they would not that he should be their king." Therefore, they took up arms against the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. Now the king conferred the kingdom upon his son, and he called his name Anti-Nephi-Lehi. And the king died in that selfsame year that the Lamanites began to make preparations for war against the people of God. Close quote. We do not have an exact date of these events, but we can reasonably suppose that this was somewhere about the 10th or 11th year of the reign of the judges. Even before the death of the king of the Lamanites, there was an effort to rebel against the king and replace him with a usurper. That certainly happened before the Lamanites attacked the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, as we discussed in some detail in episode 17 or part 4.2 of our series. 
The reason I mention this is that the earliest the king who was killed by Amalekiah ascended to be king of the Lamanites was the tenth year of the reign of the judges. This assumes that no other kings replaced the initial usurper. That assumption is not a good one, as usurpers tend to have a short shelf life, and one can imagine the disruption and chaos in Lamanite lands in the events from this period through the death of Amalekiah. Just to sum up, the Lamanites attacked and killed other Lamanites who converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lamanites attacked Ammonihah and Noah, destroying Ammonihah and taking prisoners from Noah. Those same Lamanites were pursued by a Nephite army that retook all of the prisoners after repeatedly defeating the Lamanites in battle. The Lamanites attacked the anti-Nephite Lehi's again. The Lamanites attacked the Amulonites and drove them, hunted them, and killed them. The Lamanites attacked the Nephites in the tremendous battle of the wilderness, losing as many as 35,000. The Zoramites became Lamanites, and there was a campaign against Jershon that turned back out of fear of Nephite armor. That army was defeated at Manti, suffering significant losses. Amalickiah showed up and inspired the people to attack the Nephites. There was an inter-Lamanite rebellion, which Amalickiah turned, and then Amalickiah assassinated the king. All of that happened in something like eight to nine years. That is a lot for a society. In the next six years, the following occurred. An army headed to attack Ammonihah. The army turned away from Ammonihah because of fortifications and attacked Noah, suffering heavy losses. Lamanites were driven from the east wilderness by Moroni. The Nephites built new border cities and created and strengthened city fortifications. Amalickiah inspired anti-Nephite hatred and then led a wonderfully great army to accomplish the amazing feat of capturing and holding six Nephite cities. Amalickiah was mysteriously killed. Amaron was selected as king. This takes us back to New Year's morning, as we are told in the following in Alma chapter 52, verses 1 to 4. Quote, And now it came to pass, in the twenty and sixth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, behold, when the Lamanites awoke on the first morning of the first month, behold, they found Amalickiah was dead in his own tent, and they also saw that Teancum was ready to give them battle on that day. And now... When the Lamanites saw this, they were affrighted, and they abandoned their design in marching into the land northward, and retreated with all their army into the city of Mulek, and sought protection in their fortifications. And it came to pass that the brother of Amalickiah was appointed king over the people, and his name was Amaron. Thus King Amaron, the brother of King Amalickiah, was appointed to reign in his stead. And it came to pass that he did command that his people should maintain those cities which they had taken by the shedding of blood, for they had not taken any cities, save they had lost much blood. Close quote. These verses contain a lot of details. 1. The Lamanites were scared by the death of their commander and the readiness of their opponent. Out of fear, they decided on a tactical defensive strategy in the area of the city of Mulek. 2. Out of fear, the Lamanites resorted to a defensive posture and strategy in the Eastern Theater of War at the operational, theater, and strategic levels of war. 
3. Amaron was chosen to be king. Given the fact that he was designated king before he returned to the land of Nephi, it is almost certain that the army was the entity that selected him to be king. This is an interesting point, and this seems to have followed a trend begun at least by Amalickiah, as it seemed that the army designated him as king of the Lamanites. This might go back generations in the sense of how the Lamanites chose kings, as we have no other detail on this selection process. 4. We are told of the casualties suffered by the Lamanites in their eastern campaign. Even if Amalickiah used subterfuge to gain access to the cities, the army still had to fight and they still lost people in that fighting. As a reminder, Amaron returned to the land of Nephi to inform the queen and then he sent an army to attack, we suppose, towards Zarahemla. That army attacked, as we are told in Alma 52 verse 12, on the borders by the West Sea. Amaron. Before the beginning of Alma chapter 52, a reader does not know that Amalickiah had a brother, as Mormon provided no such detail previously. This might lead a listener of this podcast and a reader of the Book of Mormon to wonder what Amaron was doing prior to this moment when he was selected to be king of the Lamanites. For example, we might assume that Amaron was with Amalickiah as he appealed to the Nephites to change the government, lost the voice of the people, fled to the land of Nephi, avoided capture by Moroni, made it to the Lamanite king, marched on Antipas, held a conspiratorial meeting on the hill Anidah, and all of the other aspects of Amalickiah's rise to power. It is also possible that Amaron didn't experience some many, or most of these things, as he may have been a hostage in the Lamanite king's home, as Amalickiah went to convince the rebellious Lamanites to join the king's army. In short, we don't know any detail of Amaron's experiences. We do know that he was with Amalickiah's army as they attacked in the 25th year of the reign of the judges, and that he was most likely selected by that army to replace Amalickiah as king. Based on his later exchange of letters with Moroni that are recorded in Alma chapters 54 and 55, one gets a sense that Amaron respected his brother and believed in his efforts. He may also have been saying the things that he does in that exchange as it was necessary in the correspondence as we have it. Regardless, I think that Amaron was a believer in what Amalickiah was espousing. How did Amaron stack up in comparison to his brother Amalickiah? That is a hard question to answer. It seems that Amaron was more cautious than his brother. He didn't press what must have been a numerical advantage against Teancum. He instead took a safer and more prudent course of action. The army that he launched in the west seems to have focused on attacking the periphery of Nephite lands. There is some room for confusion in that there may have been two separate offensives. I record it and present it as one, However, there is room for interpretation that Amaron launched a diversionary campaign as recorded in Alma 52 verses 12 to 13, and then, through the use of subversion and subterfuge, captured other cities as expressed in Alma 53 verse 8. I am not convinced either way, but I believe that the two recorded scriptures are referring to the same cities falling to Lamanite hands. That said, if I am wrong, then Amaron is a pretty creative person who sought an alternative to simply capturing cities. If I am right, 
he still took cities through subterfuge and corruption of Nephite leaders. That may have been a result of work done under Amalickiah, or Amron might have been Amalickiah's original agent in the corruption efforts. We just don't know. We do know that Amron again demonstrated caution when Helaman and his army showed up in the west as he directed his armies to hold what they had, as we are told in Alma 56, verses 19 to 20. Caution isn't a bad attribute in a military commander. In describing Amron, his caution seems to be the biggest separation between him and his brother. Lamanite Strategy and Action What was the new vision for attacking the Nephites once Amron became king? I expressed in the previous episode that I believe that Amalickiah had a two-pronged strategy that worked in association with the kingmen. The first part was the taking of Bountiful to place Lamanite forces on the south and the north of the Nephites to strategically surround them so that he could attack the Nephites from all directions simultaneously. The second part was to attack Zarahemla and probably link up with the kingmen. The first part was only partially successful and failed to achieve its most important element, surrounding the Nephites. Did the vision change once Amron took charge? It certainly changed in that Amron made no further effort to take Bountiful. Now, we don't know why this was true. Maybe Amron gave instructions to Jacob to attempt to take Bountiful if the circumstances allowed for it, and the defensive efforts of Teancum that we will discuss in a later episode discouraged such an attempt. We are told in Alma 52.13 that Amron's attack in the West endeavored to, and I quote, harass the Nephites and to draw away a part of their forces to that part of the land, while he had commanded those whom he had left to possess the cities which he had taken, that they should also harass the Nephites on the borders by the East Sea, and should take possession of their lands as much as it was in their power, according to the power of their armies. Quote. The intent of this movement seemed to be to draw the enemy from the eastern area to the west, and by so doing allow Jacob, who was in Mulek, to harass and advance in the east. This was done in the 26th year of the reign of the judges. Clearly, Amaron saw the benefit of splitting the Nephites and making them defend two different parts of the land simultaneously. This was a simple technique, divide the enemy and defeat each area separately. But this was the first time it was attempted by the Lamanites, and as far as the record details, it may have been the only time such a separation of the Lamanites occurred. I will make another argument in part 7 of this podcast series, but that will be a supposition. Based on what is known, rather than imagined, from the record, this is the only multi-theater coordinated strategy in Lamanite history. The weakness in the plan was that of trust in the subordinates. Jacob, the commander in the east, did not ever attack the Nephites, and as such, he never really forced the Nephites into critical choices though he did force them to make hard choices. A critical choice would have been one where Moroni would have had to choose between which city or area to sacrifice, something that affected the survival of portions of or the entire Nephite state. A hard choice was simply which area received more resources and which fewer. This would inflict hardships, but not risk a city. 
the Nephites were able to meet this challenge through the excellent subordinate leadership of Nephite chief captains and the personal energy of Moroni. The last several comments are written with a historian's hindsight. Moroni clearly did not see the inevitability of success, and Pahoran, the chief judge, was probably also worried by the actions of Amaron. It was a long war, and the Nephites suffered tremendously in terms of personal deprivations and battlefield losses. Numerous cities were captured, prisoners taken, crops trampled, livelihoods ended, and lives destroyed during this period. We just don't know what Amron intended other than this diversion. It is possible that everything that happened in the West was simply intended to facilitate success in accomplishing part one only, take bountiful. It is also possible that what happened in the West was also a part of linking up with the kingmen and taking Zarahemla. If you think of Amron as creative and audacious, then you ought to imagine this as an effort to connect with the kingmen. If you see Amron as cautious, then the West was only a diversion. Nephite Strategy and Action Moroni continued to fight the kingmen, as well as organizing the defenses in the West. He established armies and placed Antipas as the theater commander in the West, as we are told in Alma 56.9, and then Moroni returned to the East near the end of the 27th year of the reign of the judges. When he returned to the east, the Lamanites were in the area he left, and they had apparently taken four cities, Manti, Zeezrom, Kumani, and Antipara. We get these details when we read the letter written from Helaman as an update on the events in the west that comprise Alma chapters 56 through 58. In that letter, we are told that Helaman showed up in the 26th year of the reign of the judges, and the situation was as just described. This is important. As Moroni was still fighting the kingmen, and he only headed out to the east at the latter end of the 27th year of the reign of the judges, as we are told in Alma 52.18. At the beginning of the 28th year of the reign of the judges, Moroni held a commander's conference, or a council of war, as we are told in Alma 52.19, to discuss the operational activities in the eastern theater. We will discuss these events in a later episode. Moroni had directed Tiancum to secure Bountiful and the Narrow Pass. He was to retain all prisoners in expectation for a future trade and that he should look for a chance to retake the lands lost to the Lamanite offensive and that he should fortify the lands close by him. We are given these details in Alma 52 verses 8 through 10. Essentially, Moroni placed Tiancum in a theater defense to protect the most significant strategic positions bountiful, and access to the land northward. He was directing the affairs in the west as he placed a similar theater commander there, who was Antipas, and he and Lehi were fighting the kingmen as well. Two theaters were defensive and one was offensive in the 26th year of the reign of the judges, and to a degree remained so throughout the 27th year as well. In our next episode, we will discuss the details of the beginnings of the Nephite reconquest in the West. During the 26th year of the reign of the judges, the Nephites in the Western theater were strengthened by the sons of the people of Ammon. This group of men is discussed in detail in the next episode, but it is important to identify their reinforcement as initially explained in Alma 53 verses 10 to 22. 
This decision to fight alongside the Nephites came after the loss of the Nephite cities to dissension that is first expressed in Alma 53.8. Elaman too took his army to the city of Judea where he met Antipas and began to play a role in the defense of the region. It is through Mormon and later Helaman's letter to Moroni that we know of the fighting in this region. The fact that Mormon includes the letter means that this is one of only four first-hand accounts of conflict in the Book of Mormon and the only detailed account of a battle given through a primary source. As a note, the other two primary accounts are of the slaying of Laban provided through Nephi's own hand from 1 Nephi chapter 4 verses 7 to 19, which was discussed in episode 7 or part 2.1, the record of Zenith and his first and second battles of the Nephite colony from Mosiah chapter 9 verses 13 to 15 and chapter 10 verses 9 to 21, respectively, which are detailed in episode 12 or part 3.2, and the reporting of Nephite atrocities in a letter from Mormon to Moroni, from Moroni chapter 9 verses 1 to 21, which we will discuss in part 8 of our series. In Mormon's letter, it's important to note, he recounted official reports he received and not his eyewitness account. The events in the West are only clarified in the record from Helaman II. Before that, it is unclear if there were multiple Lamanite offensives or just one. What I have laid out in the preceding minutes is an amalgamation of what we know from Mormon's abridgment and from Helaman II's letter. Helaman II and the Situation in the Eastern Theater when Helaman II arrived in Judea with his army, the Nephites had lost the cities of Manti, Zeezrom, Cumani, and Antipara. In the process of losing these cities, the Nephites lost significant numbers of dead, as we are told in Alma 56.10, and a few chief captains as prisoners from Alma 56.12. Helaman II provided a criticism of Amaron and his generalship as he made his initial assessment of the Nephite state of affairs when he arrived at Judea. He commented first on the desperate attitude of the Nephites as they struggled to get their defenses improved, expecting an attack at any time, as we are told in Alma 56, verses 15 to 16. Helaman II also gave some insight to the actions of the Nephite warriors as described by their commanders. They fought by day and toiled by night. This leads to a conclusion that all or nearly all of the Lamanite attacks were daylight-driven and that the Nephites improved whatever defenses were damaged or destroyed during the night. This allows us to see that the Lamanites were assaulting cities. This was not a case of Nephite army after Nephite army marching out to fight on the open field and being defeated, but city after city was being assaulted and Amaron was using multiple attacks over succeeding days to wear down defenders and defenses. The only way the Nephites could survive was to strive to rebuild or strengthen in the lulls between assaults. As mentioned, Amron must have been more timid than his brother. He received a report of reinforcements received by Antipas, and this caused him to alter his orders concerning the attack on the Nephites. A reinforcement of 2,000 caused a transition from the operational offensive to the operational or theater-wide defense, as expressed in Alma 56 verses 18 and 20. What that meant was that the Lamanites were certainly still conducting raids and small-scale attacks on the Nephites, but they had stopped major offensive operations to take cities or the entire region. 
Elaman II had the perspective of how weak the Nephites in this area were, but Amron was apparently not privy to these details. It is unclear what Amron knew of the reinforcements in terms of size or composition. Therefore, it is unwise to judge Amron's generalship too harshly. In hindsight, which was how Helaman II was writing, it is always easy to see the moments of failure or flaws, but this is significantly more difficult when making the decisions based on limited information. Amron's army was also exhausted. They had captured four cities, either through assault or through deception and subversion. Each one was defended by dedicated soldiers, and the defenses were repeatedly strengthened. It is highly probable that Amron was dealing with his own army that was nearing its own point of self-destruction. It was in this situation that the Nephites began to regain their strength. There is some discrepancy that Helaman too has in his years within his record. His letter was and is not clear on what year some of the events occur. We know he arrived in the 26th year of the reign of the judges, and that by the end of the year, things were getting better for the Nephites. The next clearly defined year is the end of the 28th year of the reign of the judges, as we are told in Alma 57.5, which comes after the exchange of epistles and the Battle of Antipas' Fall, or the 2000 Stripling Warriors. As a result of this lack of clarity, it is supposed here that the Battle of Antipas' Fall occurred in the seventh month of the 27th year of the reign of the judges. Lessons learned, spiritual. What is to be learned from the details of this campaign? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived and that they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Satan can be scared. Amron now takes Amalekiah's place as the Satan archetype, and his response when waking on New Year's morning to see Teancum's army is the point of reference. Amron was scared. What scared him? I think that what scares Satan is action on our part, decisive and determinative action. Do things that make a difference. These might be small things in some global sense, but when we act as directed by the Spirit, it always makes a difference. The second thing that scared Amron and scares Satan is a prepared army ready for battle. That needs to be us, prepared and ready, armed armored, and standing in our ranks as a community of believers who are unified in our action. That may be in a service project, on a temple trip, or at a sacrament meeting. 2. War is a psychological endeavor as much as a physical one. If you can be convincing in your determination and preparation, the enemy will go elsewhere. We often think that decisions are made through rational calculations. That isn't true on earth, and I don't believe that this is true with Satan. Most people make decisions very quickly and are driven by emotion and prior experience. There are multiple powerful books that express this, like Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt, and Sources of Power by Gary Klein, as just a few examples. I believe that Satan does the same. We don't have to be as strong and full of faith as we look or act. 
how we look and act with respect to faith may be enough to deter Satan's assaults. Look like and act like the person that you want to be. Three, journals have value. Recording what has happened in my life helps me to reflect back on how far I have come and where the key moments were in my life. As I look back, I can see when the course of my life changed from one thing to the next. As an example, I didn't appreciate the profound change in my mother created by conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ until, as an adult, I was sharing stories of my childhood with my wife and children. I don't know the right way to keep a journal for me, let alone for anyone else. I've done it daily, weekly, and annually, as well as by major event. I am not in a position to say the right way to do it, but I believe that it is an important thing to do. Without Helaman II's letter as a form of journal, we would not know when the tide of battle changed in the Western theater. He was able to look back and say that it was the arrival of his army at Judea that changed things. There was a lot of work to do, but the tide had turned. That is what a journal can do for you. The tide turning is an informative metaphor. Once you mark the beach and then notice that the waves no longer reach the high water mark, then you know the tide is going back out. It will still be a long time before the water no longer is reaching parts of the beach, but it will be coming in as far less and less frequently. We want to know that about challenges in our life. Keeping a journal can be a way to provide such an understanding. 4. Satan Attacks Repeatedly Unlike the Lamanites in this part of the story, Satan doesn't just attack in the daytime and rest at night, but he does attack in periods, and then there are periods when he doesn't attack. Like the Nephites in the West, we need to fight against Satan when we are attacked, and then strengthen and repair our defenses in the lulls between attacks. When things are good and easy is when we need to repair the fortifications and repair our armor and sharpen our swords. The next episode is a detailed discussion on the initiation of Nephite reconquest in the West and possibly the most shared war story of the Book of Mormon, the 2000 Stripling Warriors, or what I call the Battle of Antipas's Fall. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word. War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.